Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and I am joined, uh, as I always am this morning on Zoom, by firstly, Sue Grimmett. Lovely to have you here, Sue. Hello, good to be back. And uh, Peter Catt joins us as well. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Very excited to be here today. Yes, well, it is a returning guest we have on the podcast today. Somebody who probably to our listeners needs no introduction. Uh, This is uh, somebody whose work has been so meaningful uh, in the lives of so many as, as we've gone on. Um, this strange and mysterious journey through the tradition. Uh, It is author, activist, speaker, former pastor, also former college English teacher, uh, Brian McLaren, joins the podcast again. Brian, thank you so much for making time again. Really happy to be back with you. Thanks. Uh, I I think it was uh, early 2021 when um, Faith After Doubt had just been released and, uh, and you mentioned that you had a new book on the way and and I took the liberty in that conversation to say, well, we're, we're going to have to have you back to talk about the new book. And <laughs> and here we are. The um the new book is Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed and the Disillusioned. Um, very recently out as, at, at the time this podcast will be released. Um, where we last spoke when Faith After Doubt had just come out since then, Faith After Doubt's been something of a, a phenomenon um, in terms of how it's helped people understand and maybe have some language for where they've been on their journey. Uh, what, what has the response, so have you been blown away, I guess, by the response to, to Faith After Doubt over the last year? It really has been encouraging. And it's been surprising to see where the book has gone. You know, here in the US, we have a pretty large Mormon population. And I was surprised to find out that large numbers of Mormons have been reading the book. And so I've been invited into conversations that I'd never really been part of before. And, yeah. uh, and, and of course, across many different Christian traditions as well. And, you know, really that book and this book, as you, you know, um, you, you three know, having read it, have, having read both, they're, they're really kind of twins in many ways. Um, uh, for people who've read Faith After Doubt, they'll understand it if I say it this way. In that book, I offer a, a very simple four-stage framework to understand human development and faith development of simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And one way to describe do I stay Christian is to say that more and more people, when they grow out of stage two, when they they no longer fit within simplicity and complexity, they feel that they're kind of graduating from Christianity. In other words, they they just feel that Christianity has very little to offer them. Mm. Uh, And and, and of course, in many cases, that's true. Um, but there are there is a deep tradition in Christian faith of a deep stage three kind of spirituality and stage four. And uh, but that's why I think more and more people are asking, do I stay Christian? They just feel this. I don't really fit here at any place. I can I can't find a place where I'm either wanted or uh, feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the book beautifully, uh, the way it flows through, it starts with. A number of the cases why one might not stay Christian or might choose to to hit that crisis point or that moment of going I'm I'm out of this game this is this is broken this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Then you move in in the second third to um, some of the cases for staying Christian and then at the end you you explore uh, how we live regardless of of the decision we make. Um, I, I hoped in the conversation we could just talk a little bit about some of the reasons for to not stay Christian, some of the reasons yes. to stay Christian that you outline. And then explore the bigger human story at the end, because um, you do end the the book kind of with a, a confession that you don't, it doesn't really bother you all that much what decision people make, whether they stay Christian or not. <laughs> and I just, what do you think the, 
the younger Brian McLaren in your earliest days as a pastor would think if uh, if he saw you today going, it doesn't really bother me if people stay Christian or not. Well, you know, I, I, I actually think uh, in private, I would have said, that's how I feel too. The younger <laughs> me would have said, that's how I feel too. I, I don't know if I would have had the courage to say that in public. But I, I because literally from before I was a teenager, I thought about leaving the Christian faith. For me, it, it was largely because of science at that point. As a kid, I just thought science was so interesting. And I, I grew up in a, a form of Christianity that was very anti-science. Uh, they saw science as a threat to, to faith. And um, so I, I don't think the younger version of me would have would have been surprised. Um, uh, but I think I was more nervous to say what I really thought. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, look, I I would imagine listeners to this particular podcast from the correspondence we've had along the journey, probably the, we, we don't need to spend too much time on the reasons one might not stay Christian because, um, perhaps they've encountered them themselves along the way and and have felt a lot of, of this, but one I really did want to explore in, in terms of the the cases for no, um, for not staying Christian, because you articulated this better than I think I've ever heard it articulated on page 62. Uh, The the case for for no in this instance is because Christianity is a failed religion um, due to the lack of genuine transformation in lives that it brings about. And you, you outline sort of the mad rush that people seem to do, jumping from denomination to denomination, from seminar to seminar, um, from the latest book craze to the latest book craze, constantly trying to find this transformation only to reach the end of the journey and, and think, I, I think everyone here is just chasing um, maybe something that doesn't even exist. Sort of, I think you use snake oil uh, sort of as the, yeah. the comparison there. Um, th- this lack of transformation that people can, can seem to continually encounter in Christianity do you think that's, is that the main thing that you've seen people reach a point of exhaustion um, with the tradition about, would you say? I mean, as you know, each of the 10 reasons I talk about, I think any one of them alone is devastating because uh, I, uh, and, but, but this one, I think, I, I think people are feeling it right now, as you well know, in, in Australia with the whole Hillsong um, uh, phenomenon, I think people are looking at leaders of within Christianity and then they find out that there's kind of a stage managed persona that's projected, but that very often behind the scenes, um, things aren't what they're projected, you know, and, and I don't say this to criticize anyone or condemn anyone or throw anyone, you know, under the bus, so to speak. Uh, But I just say it to say that I think, very often we're more interested in appearing transformed in some way than actually being transformed. And that's because of a whole social pressure that happens in many of our religious, in our religious settings. And I also have to be quick to say, I think there are amazing and beautiful examples of people who are very, very deeply transformed, but there are major sectors of our faith where, uh, yeah, where it it ends up being an illusion, a kind of Wizard of Oz projection, and uh, and people want something real, and and they would like to see evidence of it in the way that we Christians behave in the world. Yeah, 
It, it, it's something we talk a lot about uh, on the podcast, I suppose. And Sue, I know you often use the quote, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, so I'll, I'll hand it to you, but the quote that the Christian way has not been tried and found wanting. That is that the quote generally something? Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah I'm trying to think. Was it Chester? I can't remember who. There's been a few people who've made this reference, but it, but it's not that it's been tried and found wanting. It hasn't been tried. And I think, Brian, in your book, yeah. you kind of allude to that by saying we're, we're still in early days. You know, look at this, yes. the age of the universe and the evolution of human species. This is still early days for this religion. Let's give this a chance because mm. and give it a, a really decent try. Let's have a look at the deepest traditions and and really yes. try it. I also think um, in I, I agree, um, Brian, that there is many times when people are jumping between denominations trying to find something and really they're looking for you know the snake oil or, or something yeah. and they come to the end feeling that there's something that doesn't exist. Um, I kind of put something in here because that was my story too, except that I did find, I think there was some yes. validity also in seeking yes. until you find um, the charisma, until you find those transformed people, until you find a community, yes. you find what is real. So there are times, yes, to stay and stick it out and go deeper in the one tradition. and But there are also times to keep moving until you find <laughs> what is true. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was reminded when you spoke about the, the lack of transformation, when you wrote about the lack of transformation, Brian, of a, a conversation I had with a um, a friend of mine, this must be going back almost uh, five, six years now, I think, who had just left one of the, the mega churches in our area. Um, they had been a part of the, the worship band on stage. They'd been sort of a celebrated member. And, um, and they had come across some of your work, actually. And I remember them saying to me as we sat down with a a cup of tea and they said, I feel like this religion or this tradition should have helped me deconstruct and challenge my sense of specialness and ego. And I feel like the expression I was a part of doubled down on it. Um, yes. Which was, yes. I suppose is talking about that transformation, isn't it? That, that sometimes yes. we can attach to the thing that was there to deconstruct the sense of ego and special self and use it to double down. Yes. Yes. And that, that, I think it is especially poignant for me in, in my country uh, because, uh, you know, the, it's very hard. Obviously, Australia has its history and every country has its history, but it is hard to find an uglier historical phenomenon than American colonization. Uh, uh, the, the cruelties visited upon the native peoples here. Come to Australia, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Uh, but, and of course, part of what's going on here, though, that in a certain sense, the fact that Christianity play has less of a footprint in Australia is almost a, a mercy because here we've had no theological reckoning with our history of uh, of enslavement and land theft and torture. And of course, we're having all of these new revelations come out among both Catholics and Protestants of literally mass killings at Indian boarding schools or indigenous people's boarding schools. And, and what I think makes it especially painful is just the sense that the Christian religion trudges on with a triumphalist attitude mm. and is either in denial about or genuinely ignorant about like that they've kept secrets from themselves uh, about our history and th that phrase i use in that chapter where i talk about christianity as a failed religion came from a catholic novelist named walker percy who i was i did my graduate work on and was had the honor of of uh meeting 
um, and interacting with, but he was especially feeling it as a Southerner with a history of race in, in this country. This feeling that uh, it's bad enough that it's in the past, but it feels even worse. I, I live in a state where our governor, and, and there are several states like this, they're forbidding the teaching of an accurate history. Yeah. Uh, of, of the racial history of our country and religious leaders are, you know, backing that all the way. We have much the same phenomenon here with um, yes, uh, an accurate version of history here is regarded as the black armband version and denying um, all the good that the Western tradition has brought to, you know, there's still an implication that the Aborigine First Nations people uh, were somehow savages that needed to be saved from themselves and that we, that everything we've bought them is a gift. Uh, yes, yes, yet, yes. Yet our story is just as tragic and we have yes. inter intergenerational trauma and escalating violence, um, which then yes. gets visited on the victims as vict through victim blaming. So. Yes, yes, yes. And so you just realise that that in a sense, this goes back, Sue, to the idea that uh, it, it's been left untried, that we have just not tried to have a reckoning. We, we've worked mm. very hard to avoid a reckoning. And, and what's so ironic, of course, is that at the core of Jesus' message was this message of repentance, which seems to me to be having second thoughts, to go back and re-examine the things that we're, we have done and we're doing, and to be willing to admit we're wrong and to uh, be willing to say we need a change. So uh, uh, another case in point for that uh, that uh, famous saying. And a lot of this is to do with about is to do with truth telling and yes. uh, the lack of the lack of personal transformation also goes back to truth telling and it's about our inability to tell the truth about ourselves and so yes. we. There's because because the tradition is so rich and offers examples of transformation. Um, there's a tendency for us to want to grab hold of the end product, um, <laughs> yes. rather than look at who we are and go on the journey of transformation. Yes. Tra you know, transformation is a journey that takes each of us into. Uh, a different space as we discover yeah. who we truly are and encounter uh, and encounter God in in ourselves, which is yes. which is a truly blowing away experience. <laughs> yes. but, but because the tradition is so powerful, we have we have movement after movement of first generation people who have actually had that experience of transformation and encounter, and then the next generation want are seduced into the fast track or or the yes. idea that they have to be like those who went before them. So yes. I have no doubt, you know, when, when the charismatic revival was happening, I have no doubt that that was a genuine experience. Yes. And then the second generation so desperately want to be like the people they can see were actually touched and changed that yes. they, 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 they have to, they feel like, they feel almost like they have to emulate the end result rather than the process. Within the process, I think that's it. And, yes. um, and I, I've, seen, I've seen that. I think that was what happened in Methodism. I think it's what happened in the Charismatic movement. I think it. I think it's it's this idea that when you're the inheritors, 
you don't have to do the work. And there's a fear of doing the work because we aren't true to ourselves and we're not accepting that we're human beings. Yes. And, you know, and I love the way that basically your book takes us on that journey to, well, actually, if you accept you're human, then you can embrace all of this and the transformation will come because you're actually being real. And I think it's fantastic. No, I think, too, yes. that part of that process, Peter, that, and something that stood out to me in the book, Brian, was um, for many of us actually kind of accepting your inner fundamentalist, recognising that it's there <laughs> and hearing the voice. I love the dialogue you have yes. with the fundamentalist. I found it very helpful because so often uh, we are trying to run so far from that inner fundamentalist um, that we end up, you know, not actually open to things because we've, we're have we trying, we're defining ourselves by what we're not. Yes. And we're not seeing a complexity of who we are and allowing that forgiveness of that inner fundamentalist to, to happen um, while recognising it's part of our story. And I think when we approach it with that kind of gentleness, then you can see the whole picture more clearly, go on the process that Peter's alluding to, have that openness to, oh, that's where I was. We don't need to kind of jettison all my past and try to invent something entirely new. We actually go, well, look at that. What was what was going on for me there? How is that informing and and kind of being a little voice in my head that's sometimes very unhelpful when I go into new situations, <laughs> how has that got hold of me in different ways? And that process of change um, is slow, but then it's really real. Yes. You know, another place where I, I, I remember in the writing process of the book, I felt this is in one of the later chapters, I talk about rewilding and, mm. and, one, and one of the places we encounter the wild is in our bodies. But it's so interesting how much damage we do to our bodies where we 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 are ashamed of them we have to change them to make them acceptable and of course that's because we've internalized all kinds of uh, uh ideals from our culture and 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 i remember as i i was writing that i just thought this is where we end up we we can have compassion for ourselves and one another when we just understand how hard we make life <laughs> and, and, and the challenge it is to be a human, human being in the midst of this civilization we've created. I mean, it's, it's hard in many ways on any level, but boy, we make it harder on ourselves and each other. <laughs> yeah. And I think something that your work has always done, Brian, is, is help us maybe reveal some of the, the things that have been holding us back or reveal some of the um, I don't know, lies is maybe too heavy a word, but, but perhaps it isn't, um, that, that have been getting in the way. I know the learning how to see podcast that, that you, um, were involved with it's such a, a profoundly helpful thing when you go through the different biases in that first episode yes. that, that get in the way of us seeing things as they really are. And, and it, it actually occurred to me how much of a link this had to our most recent podcast with a, a guest Wayne Brighton was speaking about how he has noticed in the evangelical movement, this thing he spoke about, the, the myth of noble resistance is the energy that fuels the whole thing. That instead of faith functioning as a truth-telling, eye-opening, seeing things as they really are and being challenged movement, it becomes yes. this dig your heels in against this slippery slope and this culture that's trying to take over. Yes. So yes. I, I suppose that this is a, a point I think a lot of people reach of realizing that the tradition not only isn't achieving perhaps or isn't functioning as the thing it, it was there to function as, but it's actually functioning as its exact opposite. Um, yeah. 
You know, instead yeah. of instead of not just helping people see clearly and transform, it's actually holding people back from transformation in many cases and doubling them down in their prejudices and doubling them down in their, their you know, their, yes. their, their problems. And of course, this is why prophets arise. It, uh, you know, it, it's why Isaiah arises and says, you're having all these festivals and solemn assemblies and you're treating widows and orphans like dirt. You know, you, 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 this religion is is making, well, Jesus comes along and says, you, you run around making converts and you turn them into twice the sons of hell they were before. Quite a statement. Uh, and, and yeah, and and. And in quoting that, we don't have to be pointing at anybody and saying those bad people. We say, this is what we human beings do. This is a, a, a problem that we keep falling prey to mm. in a hundred different ways. And to sort of acknowledge that helps us, I think, first be, well, maybe be prepared for it, be on guard uh, against it, but also to just say, yes, that we it's it has this humbling effect we human beings have an amazing ability to miss the point <laughs> yeah yeah it, it reminds me actually i noticed when i was talking to to one of my students at the at the school i work at not that long ago um about the verse look at the plank in your own eye before this beck in somebody else's yes. and i realized i had only ever used that verse when telling somebody else to look at the plank in their own eye <laughs> <laughs> and that the very verse that existed to help me realize the ways I miss the mark and the ways that I can miss the point, I had used to help others or tell others how they were missing the point, which I guess yes. it's something inherent in our nature, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I tell the story in uh, a story in the book about, uh, in fact, it's a, I have four adult children and I've had this conversation in a different way with each of my children where they needed to come and tell me something I did as a father that really hurt them, you know? And when one of my sons had this conversation with me a couple of years ago, I, I said to him, you know, I'm so glad you're telling me this. I, I didn't even remember the episode that he was referring to. I said, but I can totally imagine me doing that and I can see how it would really hurt you. And I can also see why you didn't come to me 10 years ago, because I think I was, I needed to be a good father. I needed to be a perfect father in my own mind. And I, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't have been able to handle it, you know, but I, it feels like I've part of getting older is this realization. I'm not that surprised that I messed up. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and I also can look at the, you know, the 30 year old me who, you know, I was 30 when this happened and I can say, yeah, I'm not that surprised the 30 year old me would have said and done that. And, and I, I don't know, there, there's something that's kind of a relief of being able to just say, uh, it's having mercy on ourselves, it's having mercy on others. It's this ability to just see that we all need, we all just need an infinite flow of mercy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's also recognizing we have this relentless search for the pure forms, and we, yes. we yes. wield that against ourselves as well. Yes. And when we can release that need for some to find that pure expression of ourself as well, and recognize in uh, our, our Lord selves, um, then we've got much more chance of being able to do that for others. Yes, yes. This actually moves us beautifully into the cases to stay Christian, um, I think, because one of the reasons you do write um, for a case for yes, Brian, is because innocence is an addiction and solidarity is the cure. 
and you, yes. you talk about this desire that maybe fuels people originally to join a religious tradition or to you know to become swept up in it, which is this desire to find, as who said, the pure form, find that innocence, find the almost the sense of superiority. I am now, I've now yes. got the thing, and that you can yes. actually want to then leave Christianity for the exact same reason because no, the pure form exists over here now instead. Yes. And how actually that's that, that search for the pure form, is that is that the thing that's holding us back in a sense? You know, I'm so glad that that chapter resonated with you because it was something that I felt was becoming clear to me. I hadn't planned to write about that, but as I was writing the book, that needed to be said. And I, I felt like I was, I, I was finally maybe getting a little glimpse of this dynamic that's been you know, a, a part of my experience really all my life. And, and it, it, you know, it just, as I was writing that chapter, it filled me with a new admiration for, for Jesus, because you just see he is really doing the opposite of that. He's, he's people tell him you shouldn't eat with those people. You know, it, it, it brings your reputation down to eat with those people. And he just tells stories about how, he's happy to eat with those people and why he's happy to eat with those people. And, uh, uh, it's just, yeah, it just gave me the sense of, wow, he really was right. <laughs> and he really was way ahead of the rest of us. Yeah. Do you know that while I was reading the book, Brian, especially the, the second and third parts of it, I kept coming back in my mind to that T.S. Eliot line of returning home and knowing the place for the first yes. time. Um, yes. it just, it struck me how there is, and this is that four-stage model that you you talk about in, in Faith After Doubt, but that when you hit that perplexity stage, that third stage, um, the last thing that you think you're looking for is going to be found in the Bible. The last, like I, I've joked to people before <laughs> that if you if you met me a few years ago, five years ago, and said, oh, the thing that you're going to end up finding meaning for in your life is in the Christian tradition, I would have laughed in your face. I would have said, there's no way that's the way this is going. <laughs> Um, but there is kind of a, once the thing breaks open and then you can kind of see the heart of the thing and realize what it was maybe trying to say all along. I'm glad I, and that, that T.S. Eliot quote is a, is a a beautiful way to say it. And maybe it's, maybe it's one of the reasons why, you know, I knew I was taking a risk in those first 10 chapters that a lot of people would just feel, uh, angry or defensive or overwhelmed. But I do think there, that there is some value to us distancing ourselves from the thing we normally try to defend so that we can see it again. Absolutely. Uh, in, in and I think way. there's this power in naming it too, because it's, you know, how many elephants in the room did you cover in those first few <laughs> chapters? There's the things we work hard not to name and not to face. And what, yeah. and it always will be what will be controlling us if we, yeah. if we can't state the truth clearly. And, uh, I, I think those first chapters were, were really important. And I, uh, there was things that also, as you hear someone else say it, they can feel, hey, it's not just me thinking that, or it's not just, yeah, you yeah. know, other people have looked at these facts of history. Other people have looked at these facts of the way we're organising this thing we call church and gone, you know, that's really unattractive. And I think it's making things worse, not better. Um, other people are thinking that too. And there's a relief in acknowledging that and then being able to look clearly and honestly and truthfully at the situation which we find ourselves at this time in the church. Yeah. Um, I, I know I've shared this story on the podcast before, so I apologize for repeating myself to our listeners, but it does remind me of 
uh, after growing up in, in a very black and white sort of version of Christianity, um, a very dualistic version, when I first stumbled into the idea of non-dualism being so blown away by it, so enraptured by this, this felt like the right way forward, only to realize within six months I'd become very dualistic about the idea of non-dualism. <laughs> and a friend of mine uh, was saying to me, I'm not sure about non-dualism because what about this? And I found myself like a fundamentalist saying, no, 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 non-dualism's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> and um and i suppose this is the i don't know you, you write of it in in page 131 um brian of the book you write i have to be honest about this in the way i was introduced to christianity to be a christian required supremacy supremacy yeah. was baked into our doctrines our practices our hymnody our rituals let me be clear i do not want to stay christian if supremacy is part of the deal but here's the problem if i leave christianity to achieve innocence won't I just be seeking to be innocent of Christian supremacy, to be purer than Christianity's purity culture by separating myself from it? Won't I be seeking some status of superiority? <laughs> Which I think just absolutely beautifully names and, and, um, and unpacks the, the core engine that's at play here, the core engine that fueled the first um, quest, maybe the core engine that's yeah. now fueling this part of the quest. And the tradition can help us actually deal with that core engine itself, can't it? And and we 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 just need uh, enough people. Uh, we don't need everybody to be like this, but we need a few people who can embody that spirit, who can hold the tradition and hold the embarrassment and hold the pain and hold the regret, mm. uh, and hold the treasures and hold the breakthroughs and hold the unexplored potential, uh, and. Uh, we, we, I think if we have some people who, who can hold that, other people will get a feel for it. it. It's probably not something that can even be explained. It has to be, uh, you have to witness it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the thing about non-dualism, isn't it? It, as a concept, you can argue about it dualistically, yes. <laughs> um, uh, but, but as a way of being, when, when, once it sort of gets a hold of you, you are, uh, yeah, you're just in a different place. Mm. Yeah. And I, I I love as you explore through these cases for yes, that you do, you know, as you almost need to have faith after doubt open in one hand, looking at the four stages and then this book in the second, because I think um you, you write in, in in the section about where else would I go or where else would we go was the one yes. of the, the reasons to stay to stay Christian. Um, you wrote about a friend of yours who went on a bit of a journey uh, through the traditions and you said then someone else replied that she had given up on Christianity and looked for another group to find refuge in. But here's what she found. Every kind of Christian has its equivalent in synagogues, humanist book clubs, ashrams, atheist beer gardens, and Comic-Cons. There are in humanist and atheist circles, egomaniacs, charlatans, sadists, misogynists, racists, thieves, liars, idealists, Virgos, procrastinators, flag wavers, book thumpers, exaggerators, drama queens, frauds, pedophiles, addicts, tree huggers, potluck ladies, cat lovers, humanitarians, FBI agents, and bores, just as there are in Christian ones, which is such a, I, I got a good laugh out of that particular one, but I think, I think there is an element of, um, of the Christianity you talk about in terms of staying Christian, which accepts or surrenders to the idea that the pure form exists or surrenders to the idea that yeah. somewhere out there, you know, if I just go take the right turns and, and find the right people, I will find this utopia, but that wherever you look, it's messy the whole way through. Is that, is that a fair summation? Do you think? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is. And in fact, it, can I just share, it brings back to, 
to, as you were saying that I thought of something I haven't thought of in years, but uh, many, many years ago, I was, when I was a pastor, my daughter's best friend was Unitarian and we had met her parents and they had very graciously invited me to the, their Unitarian church. And I just felt it was important for me to go. It was important for me to go because of my friendship with this couple and because of my daughter's friendship with their daughter. And so I went, well, when I went that Sunday, I sat down and there was a, a fellow in the congregation who, um, I, I, I guess the language we, we'd use for it now, he was, he was on the autism spectrum. He was socially very awkward. He didn't smell good. He, he, and, um, and he glommed onto me and he just liked me. I was a new person at their Unitarian congregation and he sat next to me and he followed me everywhere. And I could tell that my new friends were so embarrassed. Like they were thinking he was giving me a bad impression of Unitarianism, you know, and he was giving me a bad impression of their church. But th there was no way I could explain to them that I th thought I have five people like him in my congregation too. <laughs> and it's, it, there could be nothing better to help me see that your congregation is a normal place that yeah. has welcomes this fellow and that he's safe here, you, you know? Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And part of part of that dynamic you're describing um and Dom was describing is that when we when we're running away, we're really trying to flee from ourselves. Yes. And so whatever group we we certainly join a group and find that there's just as many fundamentalists and pain <laughs> in the necks and so but we also find that we just happen to keep turning up. And we bring <laughs> we bring our own complexities and our own fears yes. and worries and and a self rejection yes. uh, into that space uh, yes. as well. And so one of the one of the liberating things I think of the tradition when you really mine down to it is actually discovering that we are loved full stop and yes. that there is yes. no need for achievement supremacy. Uh, and we can't escape being our true selves. And the tradition eventually asks us to peel off all those layers of onion that we put onto ourselves so that we actually discover the authentic life, yes. which is the Jesus life. The, the thing we really admire about Jesus is was his incredible authenticity. Uh, and we can discover that too by peeling off the layers. Um, one of the most devastating poems um, I've ever read was one by Rilke, which starts off, um, no one lives his life, and then goes on to say about how because of all the layers of socialisation, upbringing and so on, we all end up wearing a mask. Yeah. And then he says, so there must be this amazing storehouse somewhere of all these unlived lives. Mm. Mm. And wouldn't it be fascinating to open that storehouse and let the unlived lives find expression? And I think mm. at its best, the tradition helps us accept that we are who we are. And, you know, when we discover grace, you know, true grace, all of those layers can be unfolded and we stop we can stop fleeing from ourselves yes and then the purity movement in the end is actually us wanting to be pure in in other words not wanting to be ourselves yes and yet the beauty of the gospel 
and the Jesus likeness is actually to discover that humility, like and humility is about being grounded and authentic. Um, that we are actually, it's actually okay to be us. Yes. That oh, it's Tillich, isn't it? The accept that you you are accepted is the is the core piece. Yeah. And if we can get held on to that, and I, I think it's quite tragic for the church that the word grace because of some of the so many abuses in the church the word grace has been misused and to lose that from from our vocabulary would be a tragic tragic thing because it's the very heart of it it's saying you know accept that you are accepted and you can accept others and that there is no one who can be excluded and and written off cancelled all of the grace says that you are unconditionally accepted and beloved and and let's move from that base but it's been misused in saying oh look it's right you're forgiven it's all and so abuses have been glossed over in the name of grace and because of that glossing over people have started to look at grace with very suspicious eyes and say we think this is a coverall for allowing anything to go and it's um it's actually taking us away from the core heart of um what is truly beautiful about christianity and the way that we can remain with others uh, you know and in whatever expression we are in that can stop us being so in, indefinitely harsh on ourselves and on others and judgmental um, while still calling out what is wrong, you know, staying with while still doing that prophetic calling out. That's the move we need to make. Um, Sue, as you say that, I'm, I'm brought back to my years as a pastor. And, you know, because I had a background in literature, I, I always, when I would be reading the Bible, I would try, like I, I had been told all these things that were supposed to be important, but I would try to let the story itself say to me what seemed to be important. You know, I I would try to uh, encounter the stories with fresh eyes in part because I'd heard them and preached on them so many times before. And I remember I was preaching through the whole book of Acts. And I remember I got to the story of Peter and Cornelius and this moment when Peter is visiting the home of Cornelius and he says, I now realize I should never call anyone unclean. And I remember I thought, this is maybe the most dramatic statement in the whole book of Acts. Like this, why isn't this like the climax that we always talk about in the book of Acts? This seems absolutely staggering, you know, but, but, and, and it, it is this, because when we talk about grace, what in some ways we do is we reinforce the clean, unclean dichotomy. And then we say, and God is able to love us, even though we're such filthy, miserable, shameful bags of dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we we feel the marvel of that, which I guess it, it has its own appeal. But I wonder if, if what you're saying, Sue, is that the real point of grace is we stop thinking in terms of clean and unclean. <laughs> we, yeah, absolutely. we just move beyond that, you know. Yes. Yeah, it's breaking open that whole paradigm, that whole dynamic. It's like, you know, it's 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 not a clean or unclean. Again, that's the binary thing, isn't it? Yes. It's actually yes. a whole new way of seeing instead. Yes. And I think um this is the, maybe the most quoted line I've I found from Faith After Doubt that I've said a countless times since uh, since we spoke to you last year, Brian, was the idea of being in perplexity where you have to reach a stage where you become cynical about your cynicism. Yes, um, that your yes. cynicism might help you deconstruct or move through what was an unhelpful yes. in some ways experience growing up um, or at early stages in your life. But then you then need to become cynical about your cynicism because that 
is often another attempt for purity. And I think the the beautiful thing that that your work and your life articulates, and I feel exactly the same about Sue and Peter as as humans and many people I feel incredibly fortunate to have met and, and lived alongside, is there's like a living proof that if you if you, it's almost like if you fail enough times and you fall enough, you get to this sort of beautiful surrender at the end of it, which feels like what the whole thing was meant to be at the beginning. But, but there's almost a necessary quantity of failure that's, that's required for you to totally detach your own human um, ego and control from it as much as possible, at least. Is that, is that right? Do you think? I love that. I think so. You've got to get to the end of yourself. You've got yeah. to get to the end of yourself and you've got to get to the I give up, throw your hands up um, and recognise that any will, your own agency, things that you've tried by your own self-sufficient means to make things right, right, good are, are going to fail ultimately and that you are not just your own self-made person. You have yeah. to get to the end of that. Yep. And you have to you have to go on the journey. Yeah. And and uh, that's probably a really helpful thing as well because I know early on in the and and the deconstruction movement I guess as it's come to be called has has boomed over the last five or ten years globally in the Western world, and I do know that when people begin this that that sort of a journey of of what what has been called deconstruction, there's often a desire to take their friends along with them or you know you come yeah. with me now yeah. I I learned all this over the last five yeah. years now you can join me right here, but there is this organic. Um, organic mm. thing to it. And you, you talk about this as we move into the third part of the book, Brian, about regardless of whether you, you choose to stay Christian or not, you choose to use that label or not. Um, the question is, how are we going to live? That That's probably the more important question. The bigger question is, what kind of a human are you going to be? And uh, you talk about the, the idea of including and transcending and the stage models of human development. And on page 160, um, I thought this was really beautiful. You're right. A lot of people leave Christianity when really all they needed was to leave a confining form or stage of Christianity. Some people think leaving Christianity will solve their problems, not realizing that their problems are as rooted in their stage of development as in their religion. And Mm. I just read that and it was one of those moments I thought, I wish I could have had that sentence or those few sentences, you know, five or 10 years ago, that would have been... That would have been so helpful to understand that that sometimes we think it's about the religion or we think it's about this, but actually, as Peter was sort of alluding to earlier, it's about us and it's about where we're at in our growth and in our stage of life. Um, that's a pretty sobering realization, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and 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 in a sense, it's it's both, and we get to a place where we say, uh, there is something in me that is being harmed by this thing that by this system, by this social reality, by this doctrinal framework, by this set of rituals, this authority structure, this whole thing, uh, there's something in me that's being wounded by this. I see it's hurting other people too. And I don't like it. And I don't think I should go along with it. And I don't think I should, uh, I, I, I'm withdrawing my consent from it to continue to do harm. And at the same time, realizing that if I project all of the fault outwardly, I I miss the fact that this these systems are created by human beings, and they're sort of the co- combinations of thousands of individual dynamics that then take on a life of their own, and those all those things are alive in me too, and and this uh, and that's where this word supremacy has been sort of a a gift for me in coming up with a diagnosis of what what it 
one of the elements that I, uh, I realized I latched onto that was present in the religion that I saw was harmful. And in, in so doing, I think I was able to envision a form of the religion that was not wrapped up with supremacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course you see this so ironically in Jesus who I, I was just reflecting the other day on, on that passage. Uh, I guess it's in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, who's greater, the guy sitting at the table or the waiter serving him, you know? And he says, obviously it's the guy sitting at the table is seen as greater. Uh, I'm among you as one who serves. And he just, it's almost like a Buddhist koan, you know, he, he, he just presents you with this paradox and lets you feel it. I am not playing the supremacy game. It's not how I operate. And he just lets that hang there, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think you, the, uh, also key and related to that is when you talk about it's, it's how we see God then, and Jesus is presenting a different vision of God. That's, you know, one of the major points of the incarnation is that we are actually yes. seeing a totally different vision of God. Yes. But because while we see God as authority, then we choose authoritarian leaders. We keep yes. and creating more authoritarian systems as long as we yes. see God as this ultimate authority in the sky, the big other. Um, and you were talking before when we were saying about the, the moving versus staying or keep searching. There's a few, I, I, know, I can't remember what you just said before, but it's, it, it does need discernment in, in seeking where there is life. That yeah. part of this is, is knowing that if you are somewhere that is abusive, because there are spiritually yeah. abusive environments and we yes. don't, we're, we're not <clears throat> consenting to that. And when you can see it's mm. harming others, there is a point to say, you have to get out of that. Yes. Where yes. it is abusive, where it's making you into less than you are reducing your life, robbing you of life, robbing others of life. Life is for living. And um, we have to be very wary of the doctrines of suffering that have and sacrifice have crept into Christianity that might make people think, ah, oh, but this is just part of the cross I bear. You know, it, if it is taking you away from life, then you, then you need to move and you need to keep an eye on that what kind of God is this the authoritarian God? And is people then invoking that through the way they are structuring this institution and the way they are organizing this community? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, Sue, that you mentioned a, a different vision of God, because this is something you articulate, Brian, in the one of the cases for yes, to stay Christian is the, is to, to free God is how you put it. Um, from these ideas, from these authoritarian ideas. And uh, I, I actually, there's one particular um, paragraph that I think I must have read 10 or 20 times because it just moved me so deeply in the book, um, which is where you you basically articulate a vision of, of the divine um, that that is found perhaps in the decision to stay Christian in a whole new way. Um, you, you write... Even though I share with my atheist friends a disappointment with the narrowness and limitations of many concepts of God, I do still dare to believe there is a you to address in the universe, a presence, a love that loves through all loves, a radiant and holy mystery, the spirit of life and creativity, the wisdom woven into the pattern of the universe, the still small voice that beckons creation, including me, towards love and maturity. I can't help but see that you shining through in the face of Jesus and through the lives of holy, compassionate and wise people I meet everywhere. That you that I encounter in life is far better than the he that many of us were taught in church. And that last sentence, the you that I encounter in life is far better than the he that many of us were taught in church. 
it's such a beautiful um, encapsulation of the, you know, the, the idol needs to die to find the reality um, in a sense. And I, I, do you feel, Brian, as you've journeyed through, you know, even the, the deepest darknesses and the, the times where maybe you were happy to throw the word Christian out altogether and there was maybe just anger inside of you in the, the stage three times, do, have you found all the way through that you've had that sense of the, the divine you that you speak about? Has it been present the whole way through the journey? No, it hasn't. Um, I, I think there have been times where I just felt it it disappeared. Behind. Well, there's an old, uh, I don't know if you remember, there's an old folk song by Noel Paul Stuckey called Him, and he says something about going to a church where they talked of your existence and the fact that you'd been replaced by your assistants. <laughs> um, and, and there've been times where the assistants just felt so big that it felt almost impossible to, you know, and I'm not saying God wasn't there. I'm saying it just, uh, it was very hard for me to access. Mm. Uh, but, you know, even in that, uh, the, those times when we, we feel God isn't there, and we miss God or the times that we feel God isn't there. And we say, I'm not satisfied. There's something, there's something missing instead of just saying good riddance done with that. That's it. You know, uh, obviously there are parts of the ideas of God that are good riddance, but there, but when we throw everything out, I think we end up with a flattened world. And, and, and I think there's a way of, throwing out God that also throws out depth, you know, and, um, and I've experienced that. I felt those times when my life felt mm. flattened because I couldn't keep God. I felt I needed to jettison something, you know, on, mm. uh, on some level and, and I needed to, but I, I then needed to get something back. And, and I, I, I just think we all go through that. And, and frankly, I think we're very fortunate even in the Bible to find that sort of thing going on there. I forget what Psalm it is where the psalmist says, I think of God and I groan. <laughs> the whole thing just makes me sick. You know, I've just grown. Um, uh, and, and that's real, you know, and that's part of the journey as well. Or, or you think of the book of Ecclesiastes where you just, you know, you feel exasperation. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I love using the book of Ecclesiastes with high schoolers because they have a perception of the Bible of this this book of certainty and and constant faith, and then I you know it begins with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, and it you know it doesn't really then come back to some point of but I have faith or anything. It's just sort of an existential crisis the whole way through, and um and that belongs. I think it 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 was Rob Bell I first heard say this that the Bible is as full of people having faith in God as it is of people going, I don't think there is a God or something along those lines. And, <laughs> yeah. and that that is absolutely part of the journey and that absolutely um, belongs as part of the whole thing. I, I'm curious as we move towards um, wrapping the conversation up, Brian, a lot of our listeners, I think um, are from the, the conversations we've shared are people who are trying to navigate the, to use the faith after doubt language, the perplexity harmony thing, trying to navigate. Yes a stage three, a stage four, how do I, what is my faith now? What is my involvement in a faith community? Yeah. Um, especially in a world where, you know, and around election time in Australia lately, we've all seen the Christian values flyers come out that, that basically yeah. can feel like 
you know, it's talking the antithesis of who we are or who we feel we are, yes. and that's still the perception. And still there's so much stuff on the boundary markers. You know, people will yes. say, but are they still a Christian or, you know, do you still identify as a Christian or whatever else? How, what would you say to people who are, who feel this call to, to keep journeying through this, the beautiful, loving, mystical part of this tradition, but every single day are onslaughted by, um, you know, the, these other expressions of it that, that are all about identity markers and all about the myth of noble resistance and, and, um, and really don't want us to be a part of the tradition anymore, if we're honest. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I I mean, the, the irony is, you know, Jesus said exactly this, you know, uh, they will put you out of their synagogues and, you know, feel that they are, they're serving God by kicking you out. You know, this sense that this is absolutely inevitable. It is inevitable. And uh, if, unless we're in, unless everything is fine, we're in a struggle. And if there's a struggle, it, 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 uh, it, it, it's pervasive. Uh, and if, if we wish that Christianity was, everything was fine and pure in Christianity, where do we expect all the mess is going to be? Like, do, do we want politics to all be evil and religion to all be good? Do we want economics to all be evil and the arts to all be good? Well, good luck with that. And this is part of just accepting reality that the trouble shows up everywhere. It shows up in religion. It shows up in economics. It shows up in politics. It shows up in sport. It shows up in, you know, science. It shows up everywhere and the struggle is everywhere. And I I think it will help us be less angry at religion. If we say, look, if there was some evil thing going on, wouldn't it be smart enough to get a religious wing <laughs> to give it cover and camouflage? So I, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it, 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 it's what helps me cope is, mm. is to just say, of course, the struggle will be everywhere. How could it be otherwise? Mm. It also helped, helped me you saying, talking about ways of, of staying and inhabiting when you are staying and that, that idea of defiant, loud staying, yes. mm. I loved yeah, yeah. because yeah. there is, it would be so easy some days to just go, I've had enough of this and walk. Yeah. And I, I don't mm. think there's um, certainly amongst clergy friends, anyone who hasn't had that thought mm. when you have a, have a day when it seems like the whole thing has been corrupted by authoritarianism and the patriarchy <laughs> goes to the, to the core, you know, and we have the, your days when you go, Oh, look, just want to, but it's a cop out in some ways because yep. I think if we walk, um, as you say, it's everywhere for starters, but we mm. also then, are giving away the beauty of what we have known and we're we're seeding it to that which is unlovely and unbeautiful um but if we not only stay but we stay loudly and defiantly also gently but we Mm -hmm. we, you know we're not going to seed the ground of what is truly beautiful that isn't trying to it isn't claiming any purity but it is claiming uh grace it is claiming uh, a space of love and mercy the space claimed by jesus the forgiving victim continue to return to that um but return to it with defiance um (laughs) then you know we can be the catalyst for change but it does take courage but thankfully that courage is a great muscle i always find it does expand the world every time you get in the habit of using it yeah. Years ago, I read um, one of the reasons I'm still in the church is 
I had the fortune, for good fortune, to read some of Jim Cotter's work, um, beautiful English gay Welsh priest um, and great liturgist and poet. And he, uh, he wrote a book called Yes, Minister. And in it, he said one of the reasons he stays in the church is that it's not, it's not their damn church, so I'm not going to let them have it. <laughs> it's mine too. You know, it is their church, but it's not only their church. And the people who wanted to exclude him as a gay man and then a gay priest, um, he just said, well, actually, no, it's not, it's not your church, um, so I'm going to stay. And he was one of the people who also helped me realise that in the end, um, Christianity is an experiential religion, and yet we spend so much of our time arguing over thought and doctrine. Yes. And it, I think if we can um, re-enable people's connection with their own lived experience and their own spirituality, that that is that is the doorway. Mm. Because once once we sit in that space and sit naked before God and have and honour the experiences we have. Um, and, you know, part of the tr Christian tradition, which I find absolutely staggering, actually discounts experience mm. because yeah. uh, we can't trust our own embodiedness. And yet when we do trust it, um, and I heard this at General Synod so often, you know, people, people were going down that line of um, experience tells me that this should be okay because I've got gay friends and they're obviously in loving relationships. Experience tells me that this should be good, but the Bible tells me it's not. And you know, <laughs> to, to allow us to be incarnated and experiential and, and to honour the experiences we have of the divine and of encounter wherever those happen, uh, is, is the beginning of that transformation process. Yes. And it takes us out of our heads, back into our bodies and our hearts. And when we are relating to others at that level, it's like you're talking about that gentleman on the spectrum, when we get to be embodied and relational, um, a whole lot of the rest of it just falls away. Yes, yes. Mm. You know, my sort of... Um my hypothesis about life or my working statement about life is the first two lines of John O'Donoghue's Anamkara, where he writes, it is strange to be here. The mystery never leaves you alone. Um, <laughs> which I've just, I, I, I think that's always been a helpful thing to remind me, you know, this is never a locked down thing. And, and it's a, I, I guess what I did feel Brian reading um, this, this book all the way through is as someone now, you know, in my, my late twenties, I had a sense that I'm never going to get a clear resolution to the question, do I stay Christian? Yeah. Um, but that's probably going to be a question I will just wrestle with mm. as, regardless of what decisions I might make for this decade or that decade. The question yes. itself is going to be there forever. Is that accurate in your story? Yes. And, and I think it, it may be by problematizing the question, the, the idea that we would create a category that says, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm there and I'm good and I'm pure and I'm supreme. <laughs> what a dangerous temptation that is. Oh my goodness. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 I think we discover the gift in, in recognizing that who we are and how we live is never answered by the label that we assign ourselves. Uh, it, it's only answered by the, our actual living. 
Yeah, that's so helpful. It reminds me of Peter Cat and I often do joke, uh, you know, when we're not recording the podcast about my love of sports and his hate for sports. And um, <laughs> I'm quite a big Brisbane Lions fan in, in the Australian rules football over here. And, and I've noticed um, what you mentioned earlier about finding the same expressions of health and unhealth everywhere you look. Because you go to the football yes. and you'll see a you know a mum and a, and a dad or a mum and a mum even and, and a couple of kids and they're having a lovely day at the football and enjoying it and it's a really beautiful sort of family experience and then three rows over you'll see some <laughs> young guy veins popping out of his neck as he screams at the umpire for a decision that's just been made and you realise it is the same thing being encountered yes. by people yes. in entirely different places yes. and that perhaps sums everything about life up in a sense isn't it it's um. Yes. Yeah. It's the, you'll find health and unhealth everywhere. Well, um, thank you so much for your time, Brian. And, and I want to say, I love the, the complete grace and love that you have for those who land in any place with this work. It's something that's been a hallmark of your writing, um, all the way through, I think, but I feel like from the most fundamentalist person to the most progressive person, you know, from someone who holds this perspective all the way to the other end of the spectrum, your work is just so hospitable and loving. And that's quite a remarkable thing that I think has meant a lot to so, so many. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And I also wanted to say thank you for including the On The Way podcast, uh, our little podcast in the appendix of the book as yes. well as a resource. Thank you so much for that as well. Well, let me just say uh, it means a lot to me. You know, the book isn't officially released yet. So to have people like you who've read it and taken it seriously and uh, that means an awful lot. It really has been a, a, a very meaningful thing to hear what touched you. And um, and can I just say too, the kind, I think that podcasts are one of the places where, where people are finding solace and safety and freedom. There's mm -hmm. something about being in your car and listening to a conversation and nobody knows you're listening to it and you're allowed to think and uh, yeah, I think it's, this is very, very important what's happening. So please keep up the good work and I'll look forward to the next time we have a conversation. Oh, absolutely. Well, the book is, do I stay Christian? A guide for the doubters, the disappointed and the disillusioned. By the time this podcast goes live, I think it will be available. So you can find that online by Brian McLaren. Brian, thank you so, so, so much as always. It's been a real gift.